But anyway, we're continuing in our series on Psalms. And um, last couple of weeks, what we've done is we looked at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And we talked about the fact that those are kind of like a doorway into the book of Psalms. That they outline for us the kind of a posture, the kind of a mindset that this collection of prayers, ancient prayers that are set aside for us to teach us how to pray, how to connect with the Lord, are all about. They tell us that really it's the posture of being hungry for God and being awake and alive before Him are the things that are going to take us and allow us to benefit the most from this collection. For next few weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick jaunt through Psalms. And every week we're going to do, look at a different kind of a psalm. Tonight we're going to look at Psalm 8, which is the hymn. And hymn, is, it's almost like an anthem. What a hymn does, it, it reminds us what life is really all about. You see, uh, one of the Old Testament professors by the name of Walter Brueggemann talks about that there's three different genres of psalms. There are psalms of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And it's that the reality that no matter how strong our faith is, we'll live in a fallen world, and by the virtue of living our faith in this fallen world, what we tend to do is we get disoriented. Israel's biggest sin was not idolatry. It's being forgetful of Yahweh. What God holds them responsible in not to be successful, but to be mindful of Him. And hymns, Psalm 8 is there to remind Israel, to orient them in the world in which they live. Psalm 8 is structured around this really small Hebrew word that I'm going to teach you tonight. It's the word ma. And we can put a slide up there. Ma really means, you know, according to Standard Dictionary, it's an interrogative pronoun, meaning what, how? It's kind of, you start a sentence of a question or a wonder. My paraphrase would be, it's the Hebrew equivalent of, really? And you got to say it like that with high pitch. Really? Um, or those of you that are texting phonetics, you know, it's obvi. You know, it's kind of a like... That's what it is. So, you know, here's a new phrase for you to use. You can go, ma, he asked me out. Really? Or, ma? <laughs> uh, but really, the whole psalm is structured around this one word. Psalm 8 is going to open up with this word. Psalm 8 is going to end with this word. And right smack in the middle of the psalm, once again, we will find our little key Hebrew texting phenomenon. So let's read Psalm 8 together. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The word how is your, really? Um, <laughs> you have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of the babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you have set in place. Here's the word. What is the man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? You have made him little lower than the heavenly beings. And crown him with glory and honor. 
You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, we enter your presence tonight. And Lord, like Matt was saying earlier, very often we don't feel your presence. We don't emotionally connect with you because we're disoriented. Our minds, our hearts, our souls get hijacked by the things that go on around us. So Father, tonight we enter your presence and we, we acknowledge that. We admit that in many ways we need a psalm like this. Psalm that reminds us who you are and what you are for us and where we stand on this map of eternity. So Lord, we ask that you will do your work in our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, <clears throat> amen. Well, the psalm opens up and, and it starts out with a statement of, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. And the word majestic really means cut above, something that is far beyond anything in comparison. And what is far beyond any comparison is, according to the psalmist, is his name. You see, we live in a culture that don't understand what naming is really all about. You see, anymore, little babies are named and their names mean absolutely nothing. Rather than carrying some kind of a meaning, they're more of a like exercise in geography. Honey, we're pregnant. What should we name the kid? Hold on a minute. Let me grab an atlas. Okay, uh, Georgia, Montana, Dakota. I mean, what are we going to do when we run out of all the states? You know, I'm just waiting for the next generation of freshmen to come to Ohio State being named after different peaks around the world. You know, we're going to have these Machu Picchus and Kilimanjaros and Jamalungmas running around here. But in the ancient world, name meant something. Name stood for the person's or the being's reputation, his character, and for his capacity. And here, psalmist starts out saying, who you are, your essence, your character, your capacities are far beyond anything and ever being imagined. And what is that does that? What is it in the psalmist's mind? What evidence does he have that God, that Yahweh is cut above anything and everybody in the known universe? And he says that your glory, you set your glory above the heavens. Or they could be also translated differently, that, that your glory is being chanted above the heavens. And how is that God's glory is reverberating, is being chanted and being expanded around the world? This he says, through the mouths of babies and infants, to still the foe and the avenger. You see, what he's doing right now, he's taking the whole world and he's putting it together and dividing it into two binary opposites. You know, we do that sometimes as well. You see, during the civil war in this country, the whole country was divided into north and south. During the World War II, the whole world was divided into axes and allies. You see, during the Cold War, we thought of the world in terms of what? West and east. Well, in the same way, 
When the psalmist comes to the world, he realizes that there's two categories of people. On one hand, you have the, what he describes as the fallen avenger. You have these grown male adults who are, who are powerful, who are in search of dominion, who want to conquer the world, who want to make name for themselves. And on the other hand, you have this group that he refers to as babies and infants. This combination of two words is used seven times in Old Testament. And every time it describes a community that has no resources and no means of sustain itself. It's in one of the most tragic moments uh, in one of the historical books in 1 Samuel. We find a guy by the name of Doeg who goes into the priestly town of Nob on a mission from Saul. Because the priests of Nobis have helped David to survive on a run from Saul. So what he does, he wipes the whole priestly town. And the way he does it, that when all the adults are eradicated, we're told that he slaughters even the babies and the infants. In the book of Lamentation, this combination of babies and infants describes the nation of Israel itself. That's kind of a sandwich and stuck between the superpowers of Egypt and Mesopotamia. It's a group of people that have no means of survival. That the only way they can go on is they can use their guttural voices and cry out to Yahweh. And the question is, whose side is Yahweh going to take? Is he going to be on the side of the people who are set on making their lives work? Is he on the side of those who have power, who have influence? Or is he on the side of those that cannot make life work? And all they can do is cry out to him for help. And you see, in antiquity, the decision wasn't that easy. Because you see, we have all sorts of ancient documents that tell us that people, the kind of people that were honored in the sights of gods, were the ones that were tricky, the ones that were powerful, the ones that, that could outwit gods. You see, later on, Seneca will tell us that the history is written by the winners. Jewish historian Josephus around the time of Jesus would tell the Jewish nation that the Romans have won. That their God Yahweh has gone over to the side of the Romans. It was time to surrender. You see, even today, most of us, we we want control. We want power. You know, look at the bumper stickers that parents put on their cars. You see, my son is the honor student in such, such school. My daughter is a varsity athlete. You see, nobody puts on their bumper sticker messages like this. A doorknob would get better grades at St. Tim's High School than my daughter. My son has no chance of making a varsity team at the Hastings Middle School. You see, could just walk down the aisle at the grocery store. The messages, the cover pages of the magazines are screaming at us. Reinvent yourself. Take control of your life. Lose 30 pounds in three days while watching Hunger Games and eating potato chips. (laughs) And on and on and on we go. This psalm comes in and says, Yahweh throws his weight on the side of those that cry out to him. Those that cannot make their life work. You see, I understand that. I have an 11-year-old son named Paul. He's here tonight. I told him I was going to embarrass him. A few days ago, I mean, it's one of those things. You know, growing up in Georgia, I've talked about this. We didn't have many sports options, okay? You know, you could either wrestle or play soccer. 
Yeah, I did both. Pretended that I wrestled and played some soccer. And, you know, and so I decided, what can I pass on to my son? And I, he loves soccer, so, you know, I'm done parenting now. Um, but a part of it is, you know, it's like we had a price to pay for that. You know, in our backyard, our fence looks like a redneck with no dentist inside in 100 miles. The boards are broken one after another. But he loves soccer. And, and a few days ago, we are talking about this, and I said, well, Paul, it seems like during the practice, during the scrimmage games, you always end up with the same group of guys. And he looked at me and he said, Dad, I always pick guys that get left out. Pretty perceptive for an 11-year-old, right? And it's a testimony to both his character and his capacity. You see, according to his character, he's this bulldog of a soul that is at the same time is passionate about justice, but he's full of compassion. You see, on the side of justice, he's a kid that when he was five or six years old, we're sitting at the YMCA pool, and he's reading the rules for the pool <laughs> conduct, and then he's enforcing it among his peers. I mean, one time we're going to Walmart, so I'm pulling in a parking lot, and suddenly I hear the voice from the background, Dad, why are we here? You see, he had just had a conversation with his mother about the labor laws in China. So he's saying, do you know that Walmart pays its workers in China 50 cents an hour? Why are we here? How am I going to go in? I just wanted to buy some fruit and vegetables. Now we're talking about labor laws. But you see, on the side of justice, he's passionate about that, but he's also compassionate about people that are on the margins. And he wants to bring them in. But it's also testimony to his capacity. He's a great player. He's a great center mid. See, when he shows up on the field, he becomes the equalizing force. You see, he steps in in the middle of the field, and he can dominate. He can organize the team. He can tell them where to go and where to play. And then he can command the charge, and then he can selflessly run back and help the defense clear the ball. He can take the ball and then selflessly drop it so that the offense can score. And in the same way, Psalmist would tell us, God is your quintessential center mid. You see, he goes after those that are on the margins. Those that don't have means of survival. Those of us that don't have what it takes to make it, to be on top of the heap. And he becomes the equalizing force. He steps on the center stage. And he's going to dominate. And when Psalmist looks at Yahweh, he's dumbfounded. He says, when I look at the entire creation, when I look at all the options, the starry hosts, the created beings, all the things that you could have chosen, and he have chosen me. And he's full of wonder. He says, who is a man that you are mindful of him? Who is the son of man that you care for him? You see, when he says, who is the man that you are mindful of him, he uses the Hebrew word zahar, which really means to remember. You see, it's not remembering the kind of remembering that we as human beings do. You know, I, I remembered you and then I forgot. I knew your birthday was coming up and then I forgot. It's more of a kind of like, you never slid off of God's radar. You're always on God's mind. But then the second Hebrew word, pakad, takes it even further. He's saying not only you don't escape God's gaze, 
But he actually comes to visit you. He actually comes looking for you. He wants to be involved. He wants to be engaged. He doesn't want to be a distant deity. You see, several days ago, we were at Paul's practice. And I brought my five-year-old, Danny, with me. And it was kind of one of those things, it's always an excursion for him uh, that involves food. I don't know what is it about guys and food. But there's something special about it, right? And I don't know what is it with men, food, and athletic events. You know, I mean, baseball. Is it that boring that you need to have a dime dog night? That he can't even watch the game without it? I mean, what other context? What other context do you put two seemingly, you know, independent items together? You know, okay, I wasn't sure if I was going to go to the game, but hey, if they have hot dogs for a dime, I'm in. Never mind that, you know, as far as the nutritional value, that may rank somewhere in between a cardboard and, you know, chicken liver, but hey, I'm going. You know, what other places? You know, it's kind of like, you know, Riverside Methodist Hospital is having a special free steak meal with a heart transplant. You know, wow, I can get a steak. Filet mignon and a new heart. Sign me up. But there is something about men and food, right? So Danny and I go to Paul's practice, and I'm kind of engrossed in the game. The scrimmage is going on. Danny's sitting next to me, and he's finishing eating, and we're sitting under this beautiful flowering tree. Ladies, what would you do if you're sitting underneath a beautiful flowering tree? You know, you probably will pick one or two and stick it in your journal and outline it and put a date on it and record all the wonderful thoughts you have, right? Well, he's a man, so he's going to climb the tree. He doesn't care about looking at it. He wants to dominate it, so he's climbing it. Two minutes into it, I hear, Daddy! And I look over, and he's hanging by his foot. He's stuck in between the branches, and he's barely kind of dangling, and barely touching the ground, and immediately, I mean, I go from being engrossed in practice to my full, undivided attention is on him. That's what Yahweh does. And all you and I need to do is yell his name. Daddy, I need you. Help. And Yahweh responds. Yahweh picks you and I. And look what he does. He doesn't just give us leftovers. He doesn't just give us things that are an afterthought in his plan. He tells us that he crowns us with glory and dignity. He says that he gives us the dominion of the work of his hands. What Yahweh wants for you and I is he wants to invite us as vice regents who will rule and reign with him over his created world. But notice one thing. Notice that that position, as stunning as it is, comes as a surprise. That's not ours by our birthright. It's not ours because of our looks. It's not ours because of our intellect. A lot of times, some of us enter the world kind of thinking that the life or God owes us something. And the Bible tells us that God doesn't owe you anything. Everything that he gives, he gives as a sheer gift. Life 
Your very breath is a gift from the Almighty. You see, that's why there's a difference between the way a Hebrew mind thinks and the way the Western mind thinks. You see, the Western mind thinks in terms of the ownership of our gifts, our talents, our time, and our possessions. The Hebrew mind thinks in terms of stewardship. I have nothing that is mine. Everything that I have, I received as a gift, and I'm entrusted with it as a good steward of the resources that belong to somebody else. But in the midst of it, he gives us a dignity. He invites us into the kingship. And this is how John Eldridge describes it. He said, should the king in exile pretend he is happy here? Should he not seek his own country? His miseries are his allies. They urge him on. Let them grow if they need be. But do not forsake the secret of life. Do not despise those kingly desires. We abandon the most important journey of our lives when we abandon desire. We leave our hearts by the side of the road and head off in a direction of fitting in, getting by, being productive, what have you. Whatever we might gain, money, position, the approval of others, or just absence of the discontent self, it is not worth it. One of the early church fathers, Athanasius, said that the glory of God is a man fully alive. And today I will tell us that the tragedy of God is a man and a woman who once looked alive, but now is absolutely dead. Walker Percy, a Nobel Prize winner, says this. When he talks about men in a modern culture, he says they're just a ghost with an erection. The mere shell that has walked away from God-sized dreams. Tonight, I'm going to leave you with these words of Henry David Thoreau. He says this. He says, the youth gets together materials to build a bridge to the moon. But at length, as a middle-aged man, concludes to build a woodshed with them. Psalm 8 wakes us up to the reality that God is a quintessential midfielder. He steps on our center stage and invites those of us that are willing to set aside our dreams, who are willing to set aside all of our human attempts to cobble together human existence. He invites those of us that come to the end of our rope that are saying, I cannot make this life work. And all I can do is cry out for help. And those are invited in. And those of us are given a sheer gift of living into God-sized dreams, of being his representatives, being his vice regents around the world. And God invites you and I to build a bridge to the moon, to dream God-sized dreams. And yet when I listen to those words, those are the cries of middle-aged men and women who sat in your shoes, who had God-sized dreams, who had passions for God, who had passions of eternal impact. And yet 20, 30 years down the road ended up being mere woodshed builders. And as I was praying for you this morning, I was saying, Lord, would you give me, give me the capacity to 
borrowed their passion for you and catapulted 25, 30 years down the road when their passion for God will be matched with their life skills and with their influence and their impact will be unstoppable. Because what will happen to most of us in 20 to 30 years, we will trade our passion for God for skills of living and for the influence. And the biggest tragedy is not going to be the fact that we'll abandon God, but the tragedy will be that we'll become skilled at useless things. Abandoning the passion for God, we will gain the skills to build idols. And Psalm 8 is that prayer we're going to need to bring us back to the reality that your God, his name is majestic. It is set above the heavens. And he invites you and I to live into his God-sized dreams. Let's pray. Well, Father, tonight, we want to confess, Lord, that, that we have been practicing some woodshed building. Uh, that in many ways, um, life, struggles, pain, realities of the world around us have squeezed our passion for you out of our souls. And Lord, tonight, uh, with the psalmist, we want to cry out for a second chance, for a fresh start, knowing that you are the kind of a God that gives a second, third, fourth, fiftieth first date with you. And when we forget, you give us Psalm 8 as a tape that becomes a reminder of who you are and who we are. And Lord, I pray that tonight you would cultivate in our hearts a sense of wonder, wonder at the magnitude of the kind of a king we have. Love you, Lord. Amen.